This is Archive Atlanta, episode 81, Atlanta Public Schools. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Apparently, I'm taking on all the big topics during quarantine. Atlanta's public school system has been on my list forever, and there is an overwhelming amount of things that I can cover and ways to structure this. For this week, I decided to stick with the creation of the school system itself, the issues that came about, how they handled it, and how white and black children were separated for almost a century. You can still argue that the city school struggles with this, but the modern history of the Atlanta public school system is a whole other episode that I will happily leave to someone else. So what I won't be able to cover in detail is the old school buildings. I want to, and I will work on a mini episode about them, but I've also included a few really great links that others have researched and compiled. The history of American education begins in people's homes. That is where almost all children were taught, usually by their parents, or if they could afford it, by private tutors. The Puritans would be the first to push for public education. Thomas Jefferson was an early proponent of an educational system for this new nation, but it would take about a century to get everyone on board. Early on, even if schools existed, there was no law that kids had to attend. Massachusetts was the first state to pass compulsory attendance laws in 1852, followed by New York, and then by 1918, almost all of American children were required to attend elementary school. In 1770, when Georgia was still a colony, we had about 10 what you would call today elementary schools, mostly taught by ministers. Back in 1845, Atlanta was still Marthasville, and the city's population hovered around 2,000 people. Educational pursuits were only for whites at that time, and usually only the wealthy, and private education was preferred. The first schoolhouse structure also functioned as a church, and is described as being near the Dunnings Foundry and the Georgia Railroad. Today, that is supposed to be the corner of Peachtree Street and John Wesley Dobbs Avenue. The city's first teacher was Martha Reed, and the students that she taught were mostly children of the working class. It was still considered a small private school, and others would join its existence shortly thereafter. The Angier Academy opened around 1847-1848, and it was run by Mrs. Smith with a capacity for 25 kids who each paid $25 a year. By 1851, there were seven schools open, all of them tuition-based. Some are co-ed, some are girls only, some charged more for quote-unquote serious subjects like math, and the girls' schools taught things like waxwork, flowers, and music. The problem is that the population of early Atlanta is not big enough to sustain seven schools, especially ones that you have to pay for, which really could only be afforded by a small minority. This leads us to the formation of the Holland Free School, the first free school in Atlanta. Opened in 1853 at the corner of Garnett and Forsyth, it was strictly for poor students, and parents actually had to sign an affidavit saying they couldn't afford tuition. Its sole teacher was A.W. Owen. In the same year, city leaders called a meeting to discuss the potential of establishing public schools, but that idea was quickly shut down. By 1858, then-Governor of Georgia Joseph E. Brown asked the General Assembly to establish the state's common school system. And to finance this idea, he suggested issuing new bonds only once the old ones were paid off. Issuing bonds is the most common way I think schools are built even today, Um, and it's a way for an entity like a school district to raise money. Investors buy promissory notes, um, like school bonds, and then the district gets cash in the short term, agreeing to pay back over a period of time. But Atlanta didn't do it, and they would not again debate public education until Reconstruction. 
After the Civil War across the South, Republicans established the first public school systems to be supported by general taxes. Both white and black students were to be admitted, but legislators agreed to keep them separated. The 1868 State of Georgia Constitution provided for the establishment of a public school system throughout the entire state. But the problem in carrying this out was literally described as, quote, the great Negro population now in full-fledged citizenship, end quote. And there are questions about how to properly separate the races, and there's a lot of resentment between the Reconstruction Party, who was in power, who wanted Black Atlantan equality, and the people who didn't. There was also opposition from men who had financial interest in the private schools, and they were worried about ending that system. Atlanta is one of the first cities in the state to have their city council pass a resolution for public schools. The year is 1869, and Dr. D.C. O'Keefe is considered the leader and the father of Atlanta public schools. Sadly, he actually died before the first schools even opened, but his daughter would later serve as the first female member of the Board of Ed. In 1872, the first schools officially opened, built by a $75,000 bond issue. The first completed was Ivy Street School, a wooden structure which took students that lived in an area from the Georgia Railroad to the Western and Atlantic Railroad. The second was Crew Street, taking students from Whitehall Street to the Georgia Railroad. The third was the Walker Street School, which took students from the railroad to Whitehall. And the capacity for each school was about 400 kids, so that's 1,200 total spots. On registration day, 1,839 people showed to sign up. Temporary quarters, and today we use trailers, had to be set up. And we complain about classroom size today. Imagine a class in excess of 60 children and double sessions. So you'd go either go in the morning or the afternoon in order to fit everyone in the schedule. Within the first year, more schools were built. Marietta Street, Decatur Street, Lucky Street, and Fair Street schools. And all of these schools I've mentioned so far were for white children. Shortly thereafter, they opened two high schools, Boys High and Girls High, and they have their very own episode. It's number 14. Regarding the education of black children in Atlanta, the Freedmen's Bureau took on that task immediately after the war's end. They started both the Summerhill School and the Store School. So once a public school system is established, they just take over control of these institutions. Now, these schools were in old rented buildings, which contrasted greatly with the new schools being built for white children. And for Black Americans, education in the time of slavery was forbidden. Learning how to read or write was punishable by death. After emancipation and in the era of Reconstruction, Northern white organizations like the American Missionary Association would establish schools and colleges all over the South. And I talked about this at length in the Gaines Hall episode um, and along with the story of Atlanta University. But in the beginning, many of these institutions acted like grammar schools for black students because they needed instruction in basic subjects before moving up to a quote-unquote college-level course. In 1873, there was drama brewing between the Board of Education and the Atlanta City Council. Reverend Dr. Willis was appointed as principal for Boys High, along with the position he's given free room and board in a wing of the school building. So the council estimates that rent for this space would be $400 a year. And since it's not being deducted from his salary, it equates to a $400 raise. In the same meeting, there's outrage over the transfer of a white teacher who wanted to be moved from a black school to a white school. And they're also pretty mad that school is not being opened with a prayer every morning. And so Joseph Brown has some pretty badass responses. First, 
He chastises the council for making this all public and not portraying cohesiveness between the board and city government. But then he goes on to address each point. And first, he's like, nobody wants an apartment, so get over it. Like, we're not going to lease it out to anybody else. Second, if a white teacher wants to teach at a black school, that should not hinder our opinion about them or impede their ability to move to another school. He does, of course, reiterate to everybody that he is not and has never been an advocate of social equality between the races, and he has never encouraged or consented to mixing schools. Regarding prayer, regarding prayer, he says, quote, Jews and Catholics are taxpayers just as Baptists and Methodists are, end quote. And our school system is supported by everyone's taxes. So we cannot collect money from someone who's not able to send their children to school because it goes against their religion. Also, in 1873, local black leaders were bargaining for more control of their schools, offering to end the NAACP's legal battle against school segregation in exchange for African-American superintendent and transfer of administrative control to black officials. This actually happened, and it has arguably changed the future of Atlanta public schools forever, leaving most schools with 90% of a single race, and it got the local NAACP branch suspended from the national chapter. Atlanta would not get a high school for black students until 1924, but we'll get to that soon. With the lingering tension between the board and city council, the following two years bring moves by the city to abolish the public school system altogether, citing not enough money in the budget to appropriately fund the system. They do end up slashing uh, the money that the schools get by about $2,000, and this is really critical. So there are talks about possibly having to charge students a dollar to attend, and other board members are like, you know, we're just going to have to do an extra tax. Also, at the same time, in the separate world of African-American education, Black teachers are starting to ask for jobs. As the first classes graduate from Atlanta University, they are going across the state to become teachers, but they're also looking for positions in local schools. Ministers call for the white missionaries to leave. Like, thanks, you got us started, but we got it from here. And when they do leave the city, the Board of Education finally considers hiring Black teachers, since they cannot find replacement missionaries. It takes until 1887 for the first African-American educators in Atlanta to get hired. And white people are completely fine with, with this idea because it didn't challenge the status quo. They were teaching black kids and not white kids. Black leaders would use their growing political voting power to get things accomplished in the public school system. In an 1888 mayoral race, in which prohibition was a very hot-button issue, black votes were exchanged for four seats on the Board of Education, a new school in the Fifth Ward, and a black city councilman. This is a bold request in the late 1880s, and they did reach a settlement for those votes, um, but it was just for a new school. But they did agree to financially match the building costs of a new white school. In the same year, Joseph E. Brown is the tie-breaking vote to move the education of Black children to be done solely by Black teachers. Similar voting power tactics were used again in 1891, where they got new elementary schools for Black children and even a night school. Now, sadly, the white-only primary became law in 1892. That definitely needs its own episode. But by removing Black Atlantans from voting, it removed their power to bargain for schools and other issues in their communities. 
Beginning in the late 19th century, the progressive education movement began to take shape in the United States. And this was a move from the traditional view of what education should be, think, you know, Greek, Latin, and the classics, and move it to more inclusive and democratic ideals. Education was originally for the wealthy, and so this new idea was all about engaging every child. The face behind this movement, his name was John Dewey. He would give lectures across the country from 1896 into 1916. So in Atlanta, we see the rumblings of the progressive education movement um, come around like 1899 and 1900. School superintendent William F. Slayton who had formerly been principal of Boys High, pleads for vocational schools. And the problem is that he sees children are being held back in the same grade year after year. And there's no path and there's no plan to deal with this. Today, we would describe these kids as having developmental disabilities, but there was very little vocabulary to describe this in those times. There was also calls for introducing physical education um, and even kindergarten And eventually, this whole movement would bring about junior high schools and classes for disabled children. The first real proposal for addressing the needs of Atlanta's children with developmental disabilities did not come around until 1908. Two teachers first proposed that quote-unquote good students can leave at 1 p.m. and that the quote-unquote slow students could stay until 2 p.m. The superintendent at this time was Slayton's son, and he agreed sort of to this plan. What he did was he allowed all first graders to be dismissed by 1 p.m., and then the first grade teachers would go to other grades and assist students that needed more help. By 1911, there was a school for the deaf established, and they even had a teacher that was sent specially to the Battle Hill Sanatorium to teach kids that were suffering with tuberculosis. But the board still did not want to really address how to fully educate mentally or developmentally challenged kids. It would take three more years before vacation schools, I think today we'd call it a summer school, was established for kids that needed more help. And two women ran that program, Laura Smith and Aura Stamps. So they report back um, to the board and they're like, this is working out really great for lots of kids, you know, kids that just needed a little extra help. But the city really needs to establish special education classes. And the first classes of this kind were held in the Fair Street School. Later that year, they were added in the Boulevard and Lee Street Schools. By 1920 in Atlanta, there were seven special education classes in 40 white grammar schools, and there are two in 15 black grammar schools. The enrollment of white children rose 67% from the turn of the century until 1915. So we're building new schools to house them all over the city while the Black community is still struggling for adequate facilities that are not overcrowded. And there were broken promises in 1903 and 1910, where fixes were promised if bond issues were voted on and passed by the Black community. In 1910 specifically, the Atlanta Independent, which I talked about in um, in the Black Newspapers episode, they published a bunch of hot editorials on it. And then the Neighborhood Union, which also has its own episode, they did a poll or like a survey of black schools in the city and their conditions. That didn't really bring much change. So in 1916, white politicians voted to abolish education past the seventh grade in black schools. Now, community leaders protested this hard and they won. They kept the seventh grade. This is also the time when compulsory attendance laws were passed in the city. So all children eight to 14 years old had to attend at least four months of school out of the year through the fourth grade. 
Atlanta's Great Fire swept the city in 1917, and in the Black community, there was a cohesive voting power being used once again. All African-American voters were told to withdraw from the bond issue vote, and it failed. And they did that three more times. So with a newfound respect from the council and the Board of Education, Black teachers get a raise. And the 1921 bond issue is a really big deal in Atlanta. Um, So the council or the, the board, I can't remember, they actually hired like an advisory team to talk to the black community and ask them what they needed and what they wanted. And so a lot of schools that we still have around today, whether they're still a school or you know, fancy condos, they were built with these funds. Um, We got the first African-American high school, Booker T. Washington, which is still standing. David T. Howard is in the middle of renovations. Uh, Grady High, everyone knows that one. And Bass Junior High School was built in Little Five Points and the Samuel Inman uh, Now Middle School, but that was also built. The legal fight for Atlanta public school desegregation began in 1958 with a district court case known as Calhoun v. Latimer. Some of you may be a little confused. Didn't Brown v. Board of Education happen in 1954? Why, yes. Yes, it did. But this is Georgia, the place where sometimes we're first in line with the wrong idea and last in line doing what's right. Lessons we're still learning today, apparently. But it took a full seven years for schools to desegregate in Georgia. After a long battle, nine Black Atlanta students integrated four all-white high schools. The date was August 30th, 1961, and these brave kids were named Madeline Nix, Thomas Welch, Lawrence Jefferson, Mary McMullen, Martha Ann Holmes, Rosalind Walton, Arthur Simmons, Danita Gaines, and Willie Jean Black. And they enrolled at Joseph E. Brown, Grady High, Murphy High, and Northside High Schools. It was really important to Atlanta city leaders, especially the Chamber of Commerce, that this was peaceful and without protest. Because remember, we're the city too busy to hate, but we're really the city of keeping up appearances. And cities like Little Rock and New Orleans, they were suffering with really bad publicity from their violence and chaos during school desegregation. And the thing is, although these nine black students enrolled in white schools in 1961, it remained at nine. The following year, six more schools integrate, and a whopping 44 black students enrolled. In the 1963-64 school year, it's 143 black children out of 10,488 white. It was not until 1965-66 that Atlanta's public schools were totally and officially desegregated. And when that happens, that's when you see white flight accelerate and practically every white family living in the city limits hightails it for the suburbs and back into majority white schools. That's only 55 years ago, guys. And this history shapes and impacts struggles that still occur today. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's public school system. Thank you guys for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great weekend and I'll see you next week.